Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts and minds to see you and to know how all of scripture points to you. Lord, draw us near to you today and make our hearts new and alive through your story and our place within it. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So, um, I love in the gospel reading this morning when Jesus says, what things? <laughs> like that's one, of my, that's one of my favorite parts in the gospel because he says it like he knows he's got the answer, right? Because he does, he is. But I lo- it's like, you're the only one that doesn't seem to know what's been going on these last three days. All the different things that have been happening. And Jesus is like, what, what things? What, what things? <laughs> what things? Because you know, in his heart, he, he has just died to tell them. He says to them, you find it so hard to believe all of the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things? What things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets explaining from all of the scripture, what things? Those things concerning himself. Now, this morning, as we enter into the season of Lent, we also are turning the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Story of God message series, this is the last message in the Old Testament. So way to go. Y'all have journeyed well. It has been a wonderful pilgrimage from Genesis all the way through the story of God leading up to the birth of somebody next week, although I can't get ahead of the story, right? But just as we, as we kind of celebrate where we are in this part of the story together, I want to do a quick recap of what things. Here are the what things. Before anything existed, there was an amazing being called, who is the author of life and creates all things to glorify himself. And then Satan rebels against God, but God is holy and does everything that is good, right, and perfect. Nice. God creates Adam and Eve in his image to love him and one another, but sin corrupts God's design and separates humanity from him and one another. Then Cain murders his brother Abel because of jealousy. God's grieved by human sin and starts again, flooding the earth and sparing only Noah and his family and two of every animal. And then at the place called Babel, people build a city for their own glory. So God gives them different languages and scatters them across the world. Abraham's chosen by God to father a people to represent God to the world. Through Isaac, God tests Abraham's faith and provides in his obedience. Esau forfeits his inheritance to Jacob, who carries on God's covenant promise. And then what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God uses for the good of many. And after 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God saves the Hebrews and leads them to freedom through the Red Sea under the leadership of 
Moses, the law is given to reveal God's character and to show his people how to live in a right relationship with him and with one another. And through the tabernacle, God dwells in the midst of his people and establishes a sacrificial system of worship to forgive sins. And then we uh, heard about Joshua leading the conquest to the promised land. Gideon and other judges rule throughout a 400-year cycle of rebellion and repentance and rebellion and repentance. And then David, a man after God's own heart, becomes the king of Israel, worshiping the Lord joyfully and red, reverently. And that's the recap of where we've been so far. It's where we also pick up in the story today. Prophets, exile, and return. We're going to do a couple thousand years of history and only a few minutes. But the story of God continues like this. Solomon follows David and builds a magnificent temple. Magnificent. In Jerusalem, right in the heart of Jerusalem, just as the Lord instructs the tabernacle becomes permanent. But as a result of Solomon's spiritual drifting and a succession of mostly unrighteous kings, a civil war breaks out in Israel among God's people. And the conflict separates Israel into two different countries, a northern kingdom of Israel, which consists of 10 tribes, and a southern kingdom of Israel consisting of two tribes, namely Judah and Benjamin. And the northern tribe retains the name of Israel and the southern tribe retains the uh, the name of Judah. And that is what happens. It's a terrible time in the history of God's people. Idolatry, sin, uh, jealousy, conflict, it's all there. And it causes enmity and civil war and separation. And during this time, God sends prophets as messengers. And these messengers do two things. You can see the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And these messengers do two things. They call people to repent and return to God in his ways, to stop worshiping false idols, to stop being arrogant and seeking power and fortune and fame, to begin to trust in God, to worship God alone, and to follow the commandments that he had given them, to be his people once again. And the prophets have message after message after message calling people to return to God. And the prophets also tell people about a coming king, one who will save them once and for all, a messiah, the Christ. And God gives the prophets visions of what this Messiah will be like, what he will look like, what he will do. And I want to just look at three of them. They're over 300, but for the sake of my birthday lunch at noon, we're just going to do uh, three of them. But I want you to do this. Listen carefully um, at these promises because they're going to appear in future narratives. Okay, listen carefully. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God promises this. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my commandment. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This time I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God promises this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see what God's doing? God's promising that in this new covenant, it won't be an external performance. It won't be about ritual or behavior. God is going to do something new and it's going to be from the inside out. And through the prophet Isaiah, God promises the coming of the Messiah. He says, he will be a descendant of King David. A virgin will give birth to him in Bethlehem. A messenger from the wilderness will challenge people to prepare for his coming. He'll bring good news and healing to the poor, brokenhearted, and the sick. He will do no wrong, living a life without sin. He will be beaten, whipped, and wounded, all so we can have peace, healing, and forgiveness. He'll be silent when faced with accusations. He'll be put on trial and thrown in prison. His hands and feet will be pierced. He'll be killed like a criminal, then buried in a rich man's tomb. God will lay the punishment and guilt for all our sins on him. His life will be made an offering for us. And because of him, many people will be right with God. That's a summary of Isaiah. And that, those three examples, three of 300, it's just like, a, it's like an appetizer <laughs> of the hundreds of Messianic prophecies found in the Old Testaments, Old Testament. These prophets not only call people back to the ways of God, they promise how God is going to come and show up and deliver them once and for all. And they also declare that Judah is going to be taken captive for 70 years. And that actually happens. If you look on the map, you can see um, two different empires um, the Assyrian Empire, the capital of which is Nineveh, comes and conquers the northern kingdom. They intermingle, intermarry, and that is where we have what is called the Samaritans or the Sumerians. And then um, after, a couple of, after another hundred years or so, the kingdom of Babylon conquers Assyria and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as well. And rather than intermingling, intermarrying, they actually take all of the Hebrews in the southern kingdom of Judah back to Babylon into captivity where we hear about the prophets like Daniel, for example. God disciplines the southern kingdom by allowing them to be taken into captivity for 70 years. And it's a hard, difficult, miserable 70 years away from the promised land, away from the presence of God, in a foreign country with foreign people, once again, without God and without worship. And then one day, God raises up a leader named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem's walls are in complete ruin. And he becomes so depressed that he starts weeping for days. And the king of Babylon sees how sad Nehemiah is and asks him, Hey, how can I help? 
And so Nehemiah says, please send me to Jerusalem and give me permission to rebuild the walls of my city for my people. And the king says yes and sends him with letters of safe travel. And when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he spends three days looking over the situation, studying the situation, coming up with a plan. And then he gathers all the leaders who agree with this plan and commit themselves to the project. And each leader becomes responsible for a section of the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And the families work together arm in arm, side by side, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And as they're doing that, all of the non-Jewish people around them approach them and laugh at them and threaten them. But Nehemiah says, don't be afraid. God's stronger than our enemies. Be prepared to fight, but don't stop building. And everyone works together. And in 52 days, the walls of Jerusalem are completely rebuilt. Here's what's really cool in this particular narrative in God's story. When they're rebuilding the walls in the midst of all the rubble and the mess and the construction, they find something. They find an ancient scroll. And what Ezra the scribe realizes is, is that this ancient scroll is actually the book of Deuteronomy. And so Ezra calls all the people to assemble for worship to hear the message of this lost book. And the people gather and everyone listens with wonder as God's story, their story, the story of their heritage is read aloud. They hear how God brought them to Sinai. They hear how God entered into a covenant with them. They hear exhortations not to fall away from Yahweh who loves them and gives them his very best, but to cling to him, to trust him and his provision for him. And they hear how God out of love chose them and called them to be his holy people, to represent him to the nations. And what happens in the midst of this assembly, in the reading of the word of God, is that a great spiritual power comes among the assembly. It's so great that people begin to grieve of their sin. They begin to mourn their separation from God and his promises. And so they start confessing their sin and turning back to God. Through the reading of the story, through the reading of scripture, the spirit of God moves among the hearts of the people of God and they become alive to God again and his purposes again. And they experience revival and they re-enter into covenant with God. And for 400 years, they wait for Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, to come. And so Jesus says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And he takes them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What things? Him. Jesus talks to these two disciples about 
himself. What things? <laughs> the pattern that we see in the story of the prophet's exile and return is the pattern of the gospel. It is the dominant pattern in the entire story of God. And you see it multiple times expressed in many ways, whether it's in the garden or through Noah or Abraham or Moses or even in the prophet's exile and return. This pattern shows up repeatedly because it is the grand gospel pattern of the universe. What we see here is the promised land that people inherit the promised land and even bring the temple into existence as God has instructed, and yet they rebel against God and his ways, so God exiles them, separates them, disciplines them in love, but doesn't give up on them, pursues them, and brings them back. They return to him and his presence together as a people, and revival breaks out, and their response is worship and commitment and a rededication of life and purpose. That's, that's the pattern of the gospel, y'all. It's also the pattern of our story. This is the pattern of conversion. And as I was praying and preparing for the message this morning, I thought, you know, how often do we ever think about, or how often does anybody ever teach or explain to us exactly how God does those things? And so real briefly, I just want to explain to you what things God does in our lives that follow the story of God that actually become our story. So here is the gospel pattern that is in your life. God knew you from before the foundations of the world. He wanted you. And so he chose in love to create you in his image and likeness. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. You bear the, the glory of God in your lives. Unlike all else in creation, you bear the likeness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But just as it was for Adam and Eve, sin breaks into our hearts and breaks down our hearts. And because of sin, we are spiritually dead in our transgressions. So when God creates us, he breathes life into us. Like we are created in his image and likeness, but we're not just physical beings, we're also spiritual beings. And he breathes his life into us. And our heart becomes alive to God and to his purposes and design. But sin leads us to spiritual death. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. There is no life, no spiritual life within us. And as a result of being dead in our sins and transgressions, we are separated from God and unable to do anything to restore the relationship that God created us to enjoy with him. Do you realize what it means to be spiritually dead in our sins and transgressions. It's like being at the bottom of the ocean, like Marianas Trench, like, like way down as, as far as you can go without an oxygen tank. You're not scuba diving. You're there. You're dead. 
You don't have the ability to breathe. You don't have the ability to surface. You don't have the ability to come up and even ask God to help you. You are dead. It's like being on an operating table and you're flatlined. It's not the Princess Bride where we're mostly spiritually dead. We are all spiritually dead. There is no life within us. And yet that's not what God creates us for. God creates us for life. And so what he does is he sends his son Jesus on a rescue mission who takes on the form of a servant, who humbles himself, who dives in to the chaos of the world and goes all the way down to us and breathes the breath of life into us, making us alive and then raising us to the surface with him to start a brand new life. It's like we're on the operating table and the great physician comes in. Paddles aren't gonna work. Like he, he, he opens us our mouth and he breathes into our souls the breath of life that we would be resurrected. Right? That's why the story of Lazarus is so powerful because he was dead and wrapped up and ready for burial. But Jesus comes and says, no. Come on out. It's why when he holds the hand of the little girl and says, little girl, get up. It's so powerful because they were dead and then they're alive. The same is true for us. We were spiritually dead, but Jesus makes us alive. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead now lives within us and he writes the love of God on our hearts. He writes the commandments of God on our hearts and he not only puts it on the inside this time, but by the power of the spirit, he gives us the desire and the ability to keep those laws. And so, amen. And so when, when Jesus starts His earthly ministry, he says, if you want to experience this new life, if you want to experience the fullness of the kingdom, repent and believe. Turn away from trying to live for yourself and the world and all of the temptations that the devil tries to get us to get on his side with and turn to me and believe. And when you believe in me, I'll give you abundant and eternal life, the life that I created you to experience in the first place. I'm giving it to you. The old will go, the new will come, and you will have this fullness of life that brings great joy here and now and for eternity. That pattern is the pattern of all of our lives. And so as we begin the season of Lent, I just... I want to invite you to consider how God's story fulfilled in Jesus has become your story and how your story has followed that same gospel pattern. It's the pattern of our conversion, y'all. And it's really what historically the season of Lent has been all about. To acknowledge that God created us in his image and likeness to realize that sin separates us from God and that we have no ability in and of ourselves to restore our relationship with God. But Jesus comes to die on the cross for our sin, purifying us from all unrighteousness and clothing us in his and resurrecting us with him to new life. 
And so as we enter into a season of Lent, will you consider maybe that hasn't ever been that clear before. And so the season of Lent is a real gift for you that for the next several weeks as we approach Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, that you have the opportunity to really contemplate, God, have you taken away my heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh? And what the most beautiful thing that you could possibly celebrate on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, is the fact that the old is gone and the new has come, that you have a new heart and you're now alive to God and his purposes, that you are fully a part of his story for eternity. And if that's you, then I want to invite you to celebrate that um, going through this journey of Lent. And on Easter Sunday at Kitty Park, we're going to have a big trough and we're going to baptize people because we believe that God is at work at Grace Northridge taking away hearts of stone and giving hearts of flesh. And as we have talked about the word of God and told the story of God, we know that God is demonstrating his power in our hearts. And for some people, that means that they're going to surrender and give their life to Jesus for the first time. And we want to celebrate that with the sacrament of baptism. And we're going to do that at Kitty Park on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. For some of you, and maybe, you know, you've been kind of around the people of God. You've been participating um, in the routines of God for a long time. But someone once told me, being in a garage doesn't make you a car, (laughs) right? So you've been been in the house of the Lord, but the Lord has recently or or wants to is, is, is putting on your heart the desire to fully become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Or maybe as we have gone through the story of God to date, God is bringing you to the place where Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah and the people of God, where you just want to rededicate your life to the Lord Jesus because you've seen him in a new way. You're drawn to him in a new way. And wherever you are in your relationship with the Lord, he loves you and he has everything for you. All the love, all the joy, all the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, discipline, everything that you need to live a life, to glorify God, and to fulfill your innermost desires. It's in Jesus. And so wherever you are, I just want to invite you into the season of Lent with this prayer now, but join me in making this your prayer every day. This is going to be my prayer every morning of Lent. So will you, will you pray with me? It's really just um, a simple prayer. Sorry, thank you, and please. Asking God for forgiveness of the things that we've done wrong and telling him what we want to turn away from um, in order to follow Jesus. It's, it's saying thank you, expressing thanks for Jesus dying on the cross for us and his free gift of forgiveness and freedom and the presence of his Holy Spirit. It's just saying, please, that, that the Lord would pour out his Holy Spirit and give us that desire and the ability to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength once again and to love one another as he loves us in Christ. So just pray, pray this prayer silently with with me in your heart. And let's make this prayer every day as we prepare in this season. Lord Jesus, I know I've done some wrong things. And I confess my sin. And I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you rose from the grave and that you are alive today. 
showing me what things. And so I open the door of my heart. And I yield my entire life to you, Jesus. I receive you as the forgiver of my sin. And I commit to follow you as the leader of my life. Thank you for loving me, for forgiving me, for reconciling me with a father in a relationship that will last forever. Please, fill me with your Holy Spirit and guide me in the way and the truth and the life. I ask for your glory and my joy. In Jesus' name, amen.